how do we stay safe? That is the subject of the conversation that I had with my next guest, Juliet Kayem. Juliet was a member of the National Commission on Terrorism. She's the former Assistant Secretary for Intergovernmental Affairs at the Department of Homeland Security. She's a CNN analyst. Uh, She's a specialist on national security and terrorism issues. And she joined me to talk about whether or not we're ready for current security threats, uh, whether or not the inaugural will be safe, the attack on the Capitol, and also where we go from here in this country where we're so divided, where there's a subset of Americans who are defending another subset of Americans as they attempt an insurrection. Where do we go next? Here's my conversation with Juliet. Welcome to the show, Juliet. I am thrilled and delighted that you are here. Welcome. I'm so thrilled to be here and good to see you and so exciting. It's always it's bad news, but still, thank still, you. Well, here's the news. Here's where we are now. The inauguration is just a few days yeah. away. Given what you know about the state of uh, the threats that we're now facing, and given what you know about the state of our preparedness to meet those threats, is there anything that concerns you about the inaugural? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think we're in the middle of a counterterrorism effort, uh, that what we saw last Wednesday at, at the Capitol was a organized domestic terrorist attack, basically, inspired and organized by the president of the United States. He had been mentioning January 6th for a long time. It's well-funded, apparently. Uh, They had contact with each other. This was not a random group of people who got inspired and then walk up the street. And you could kind of tell that the day of. I mean, you saw people with military precision, lots of sort of sophisticated crowd uh, maneuvering, which you only really learn by practice. So we have to conceive of ourselves as in the middle of a counterterrorism effort right now, just absolutely in the middle of it. And that will be dealt with by an unbelievable show of force. So for people in D.C., you're experiencing it, the helicopters, tanks, National Guard, basically stay home at this stage. That will, I think, do much to minimize the threat. I mean, it only takes one person but to do something bad. But I think that there's, you know, enough rules, enough. It, they're making it, they're doing enough layered security to make it very difficult to someone, for someone to be able to maneuver all the different pieces. So that's fine. So in some ways, I view the, like, the 20th is like, okay, we knew it was going to happen. It's a national special, what's called an NSSC, a national special security event. We deploy all resources and then move forward. The worry is, is, of course, what happens after. And that's why I've been very forceful, more forceful than I had been the last four years. Certainly by Christmas, when it became clear to me that the president had basically changed from inciting to planning. So it's it was no longer generic words like fight or free Michigan. It was, we're meeting on June 6th and we're going to stop the steal. Now, how do you hear that? Because if I'm a big believer, I'm thinking the president is telling me to come, sorry, January 6th, not June, January 6th, and he's telling me to stop the steal. And I'm hell-bent on doing it. So he needs to be stopped. I mean, in other words, when I say I'm very forceful now, he is the leader of a terrorist organization. This is a way one has to conceive of their president. It's unfortunate. 
it's strong on white supremacy, but it's got voodoo, QAnon. I mean, it's got all the crazy, right? But it's a, a fundamentally a white uh, supremacy animation, animates it. And the best way to stop a terrorist organization, or one way that's a precondition, is to isolate the leader. He only has a few days left. And let me ask you this. One, uh, if you believe that Donald J. Trump is the leader of a terrorist organization, he's only going to be in office for a few more days. But if that's what you believe of him, then his influence and his ability to inspire others to act in the way that we saw on January 6th continues. So what's the response there? And secondly... How do you distinguish between those of the president's supporters, of whom you and I know there are many, who might say, you know what, I voted for Donald Trump because I wanted a strong reaction to what I see as a loud, burgeoning left-wing movement. I'm just playing devil's advocate. I do not agree that the people's capital, the capital of the United States of America, should have been assaulted and penetrated and denigrated in that way. What do you say to those people? Because it's going to be a hard sell to get some folks to say, yeah, I voted for the leader of a terrorist organization. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think that's really good that you, you, you're you sort of distinguishing, because I think some of my argument sometimes gets misunderstood as, you know, it's, I'm very clear that 99. 8% of Donald Trump's supporters, maybe not that high, but, you know, are just voters. They're just voters. And so, some proportion of them may believe that the votes weren't fair and square, but they're not going to, like, leave their lives and take up arms. I guess the other piece of that is his floor has dropped now. So this is what's always the amazing thing with, with Trump, right, was how could this many people still like him? Well, since last Wednesday... All of a sudden, I think the public just wants to be done, right? It just wants to be done. So he's still going to be around. That's why this five-day period or seven-day period, as I described it, you know, between the two Wednesdays, is so important that he, I'm sorry, 14-day period between the two Wednesdays, he cannot be seen to have oxygen. He cannot be seen to have a second life, to have another run, all this stuff. So that's why he must be isolated, and I don't like the language to sound violent, but the word I would use is crushed. He just essentially needs to be crushed politically. So keep keep up with the impeachment, have cabinet members leave, like, you know, have the apparatus turn away from him. He's still going to have his supporters. Monetarily, the banks are moving away from him. Companies are now taking money away from people that's endorsed the big lie. So that's important technologically and communications wise with booting off the social media platforms, all of those things, right? The the family banishment, the criminal prosecutions, everything until it is absolutely clear that he doesn't have a second life. And I sound incredibly harsh for me, but it's the only way we're going to minimize the threat that was willing to take up arms. So let me ask you this again, playing devil's advocate. Yeah. The president didn't mean it. He always speaks in these hyperbolic terms. He is an entertainer. He goes on TV and overstates things to appeal to an audience and for shock value. He had no idea that people were going to take him literally and show up and storm the Capitol. Your response. Yeah, I would say 
maybe his people could say that, except for all the reporting that came out about his conduct during it. I mean, if there's an article of impeachment that is uh, missing, it is the failure of the duty to protect. It is the sitting there. Pence is five minutes from getting killed, we learned today from the Washington Post, and him not doing anything. So it's the combination of basically early December to January 4th, where he's saying fight January 6th, I'm sorry, January 5th, January 6th, January 6th, let's all meet, fight, stop the steal. It is the failure to prepare for what we're likely to see, right? And we don't know if he had involvement with that failure. The language that morning, which was not the language of humor, it was the language of fighting. It was not funny. And, and no, you couldn't interpret it that way. And then, of course, the failure to protect. So all of those combined lead to not only unbelievable, impeachable offenses, but also to the necessity of viewing him through the lens of a, of a terror and counterterrorism. So based on what you know, kind of moving away from the president's involvement yeah. uh, for a moment, Based on what you know, both about uh, the security apparatus in Washington, how easy and not easy it is to traverse the Capitol and other public buildings, do you have any reason to believe that the insurrectionists on January 6th had inside help? Yes, I do. I mean, I think there's enough anecdotal evidence to suggest that at least some, not many, some Congress people might have been helping with surveillance or at least supporting it. We certainly know that political infrastructures in certain states were supporting the transportation, renting buses, doing other things. We also know, at least in one instance, and then there's several investigations, that Capitol Police were not behaving appropriately. Now, I will say one thing. The one group of people that I just think we need to figure out what happened is those that had pictures that show them either taking a selfie or putting on a MAGA hat. And the reason why I say that is it seems very clear to me they may have been doing that to de-escalate. So you do whatever you can to de-escalate. You know, you if you don't drink, but the terrorist wants a drink, you have a drink with the terrorist, right? So just thinking of it that way, that small group of people. But we know that law enforcement, military, and in one case, possibly Secret Service may have been involved. And we need to root that out. But part of the way we have to think about it, too, is Trump is relevant to that rooting out. I mean, what I want to say to all audiences, but in particular communities of color, uh, those who who perceive this differently. So if you listen to if you listen to African-American congressmen and women, everyone's traumatized. I mean, they really thought they were going to be killed. Right. Well, I mean, you hear is- about some of the specific things that African-American policymakers talked about. Hakeem Jeffries said that someone urinated outside of his office. Uh, Sheila Lee mentioned that there was a black curtain put up to uh, memorialize John Lewis. The mob yanked that down. I mean, there seemed to have been some incidents that took place yeah. on January 6th that were racially motivated. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. There's a freaking noose. I mean, it was a they built. And that's what that's why one should think of it as this was planned. That takes a while and stuff. So those sentiments aren't going away. Well, let me put it a different way. They were there, but they've been nurtured for four years. They've been more than nurtured. They've been urged. They've been watered. They've been pruned. They've been everything. So I always hate when people say, well, he said both sides, you know, people on both sides. You know why? He's chosen. He doesn't believe in both sides. 
He believes in one side. Like he actually made us believe that he might have sentiments on both sides. He doesn't. And so we need to silence him. And so this is where I'm like, good for you, Twitter. Good for you, Facebook. Make it permanent. Because he, he's a unique character. Do you, do you really feel like Ted Cruz could do this? No. But, but let's just use that example for a minute. Uh, Ted Cruz is a great example because yeah. here we've seen somebody like many, frankly, uh, like a number of the president's public supporters who've really been on the wrong side of a fight with him, where he has insulted them, he has said horrible things, he has gone after their patriotism, he's gone after their families. Yet when he kind of holds out a carrot, hey, you wanna be my friend? Yeah, absolutely I wanna be your friend, I'll do whatever you say. It's a dynamic, frankly, that I don't recall seeing in Washington, yeah. you know, where people have such short memories. Yeah. What is that? Is that the charm of Donald Trump? Is that the need for people to sort of feel like somebody is speaking to them? What do you think explains that particular appeal that he has where people like literally he can one day talk about your family the next day you were trying to overturn an election for him? What is that? I think, I think, you know, we did not anticipate, I mean, we're lawyers as a legal structure, a Congress that would so abdicate its duties to America. I think that's, I think it's just right. I mean, I think they could have gotten rid of him in year one. And then I used to always walk around honestly and say, what's the matter with Pence? Like, we'd argue over Supreme Court picks, but like, that's what we do. Like, you know, not this madness. So I think it's particularly him. So many of the norms of the presidency were taken for granted and that they now need to be memorialized, legislated, you know, things like hiring your children, you know, other things like that, that um, about having to disclose your taxes and things like that. So, but I don't know why he got rid of it. I think, I think the media was mesmerized by him early on. They've turned on him, obviously, at least the mainstream media. And then I think in these last weeks, he just, it, it was almost impossible to defend him. So those who continue to defend him either were members of the cult or they did so for political reasons. And I personally think that's the wrong political calculation because I think one year with Joe Biden we're never going back to this. And I think if you're a Democrat, what you're worried about is the Republican Party comes to its senses, nominates <laughs> Mitt Romney again, and then you have a competitive, you know, 2024. Yeah, but remember, you know, 2020 was incredibly competitive and it was incredibly yeah. competitive after people had really had a sense for four years uh, of what yeah. a Trump presidency was. I think the African-American community in South Carolina is owed the Medal of Freedom plus some. I mean, I think because in hindsight, whatever you feel about the politics of, you know, Elizabeth Warren versus Joe Biden versus whoever, in hindsight, he was made for this moment. I, I guess I'd put it that way. And it's not clear to me the other candidates were. In other words, the ability to calm us during his presidency next. Like, you know, like, oh my God, he gives a normal speech. But also I think getting independence, being able to continue to rally the traditional democratic base. You're talking about Joe Biden. Joe Biden, I'm sorry, yeah. That he, in some ways, he's sort of perfect for this moment. And and I, th my personal feeling is, and maybe I'm just giddy about what's happening in DC and what you're hearing about getting us out of COVID and stuff is, 
I think he's going to end up being one of the most progressive presidents in American history. $15 minimum wage, things like that. I mean, I think because this moment is, is going to allow for it. Let's talk for a moment about, again, some of the details of January yeah. 6th. Yeah. A mostly white crowd. I think yeah. I saw one or two uh, non-white folks in that mob. Does race explain the difficulty that some people seem to have yeah. kind of digesting this as an act of terrorism? Is it racism? Because frankly, look, I'm being flip. I, I'm being a little light. But um, you could be like a bearded Muslim man. You yeah, run a light I'm, I'm in Arab, New York. I get it. Right? Run a light in New York during rush hour. A bunch of people are going to assume that you're off to blow up a building. Be a white person. Grab a Bible. Grab a gun. Point the gun at me, yeah. frankly, or yeah. whoever you like. Wrap yourself in the flag as you're talking about how you're going to kill me. And people are like, oh, look at these disgruntled patriots. Yeah, exactly. Uh, is it only race? I, oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that that... I mean, for one, the president really wouldn't let us, us meaning the law enforcement and intelligence agencies, really organize and understand white supremacy. He's always made it, you know, I mean, we know that, that he is, people that have left the administration have said that, that he just, you, you couldn't talk to him about this, that, that about the rise of white supremacy. There's no other explanation for how it got so out of hand, right? I mean, if that were a BLM group, having been told to fight by Barack Obama or whoever, right? We can't even imagine. This is the thing, like I say I that. Even, it sounds like it's so counterfactual that yeah, exactly. you may as well say, if we all grew wings, if we all yeah. grew wings and flew, exactly. it's as counterfactual as that. Exactly. So that's like, that's the thing is like, you can't even imagine. And I think, but I, there's no question in my mind race had to do with, I think four things are true uh, simultaneously. They were woefully unprepared and it may be an intelligence failure, right? That, that they should have known, they should have known, I knew, and I'm not even in it. The second is that, that most of them behaved bravely and saved us. I mean, you're hearing these stories of these, you know, DC cops just like, they're like, they got the Capitol and they're like driving in to save their friends on the hill. The third is that there are elements of sympathy within law enforcement that we saw play out. And the fourth is, this would have been totally different if it was BLM. I think all are true. I think all are true simultaneously. And that's why we need like a thorough investigation or review. So let's talk about what happens next. Uh, you are a security expert. Yeah. You're a homeland security expert. You're an expert on terrorism, among the different sorts of threats we face. There is an element of the country, and yeah. let's put aside the racists and the terrorists and the terrorist sympathizers. There's an element of the country that uh, felt very alienated by a lot of the norms that President yeah. Trump disrupted. They didn't respond to those norms. Those right. norms didn't reflect them. They didn't protect them. How do we re-engage alienated people who, by the way, are not just white? I mean, it's funny. In the course of the Trump conversation, people have focused on the alienated uh, white people who've supported him. There's a larger group of people in America who feel alienated and disgruntled more generally. How do you strike a balance between kind of giving them voice and give, allowing, allowing them to fully express the extent of that alienation 
while at the same time drawing a line yeah. firmly on the side of security and safety yeah. and saying, you know what, look, you can protest all you like, but you are not allowed to point a gun and threaten to hang a congressperson. How do we draw the line? I think the line is the big lie, the big election lie. And I do think that is where the, the policy disagreements, even the, the racial disagreements, the immigration you know, uh, disagreements, right? those differ than the foundational challenge, the insurrection, that's what it was, that the president led. And so that sentiment has to be rooted out. And it has to begin, it has to begin either with silencing Trump so he's a loser or making sure other voices are louder than his. So we're waiting for them. Uh, but it's gonna be it's gonna be a while, right? I mean, it is it is gonna be a while. The big lie that you're referring to is this false, baseless suggestion that the election was stolen by the Democrats and that all of those millions of people uh, who went out and voted for President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris don't exist. That's the big lie. Digging into that lie, it's predicated on a number of people, people who are a part of the foundation of our system of rule of law, people who yeah. are part of the foundation of our government. That lie got life because a lot of those people said, you know what, we can't trust these courts. We yeah. can't trust these judges, even though we appointed a lot of the judges in those courts, or at least some of them. How dangerous do you think it is to foment this sort of distrust in the court system? You and I both yeah. you know, worked at the Justice Department. We're both lawyers. You're married to a federal judge. Yeah. Does this distrust of our courts concern you? Yes, it does. And I think you know, this idea that the courts as an institution can't push back. I think Trump broke, broke a lot of norms, but maybe some of those norms should have been broken. So I do think that the judiciary's judiciary needs to begin to reassert the primacy of, of the rule of law. I hope Biden, and I hear he is, is prioritizing filling these slots. There's not many right now. The, you know, McConnell was good at pushing that through. But, you know, if the complaint about Obama was he didn't fill them fast enough, I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, the truth is, is that we have to begin the process of, of taking the court seriously. And then some of it begins with, I mean, it's a, it's a long-term challenge, which is the need to begin to set norms, I guess I would say set norms in which there are lines we won't cross. I mean, in other words, if I want to look at silver lining of the last two weeks, it is that Trump was not allowed a soft exit. My biggest fear was he rages. The, is he going to go to the inauguration? Is he not? It's all talk about him. Biden can't get in the oxygen, blah, blah, blah. And then he goes down to Mar-a-Lago and he's tweeting while Biden's giving his speech and all this stuff. So I, I do think that part of the sort of de-radicalization part begins at the top, begins with uh, saying that the third rail actually isn't just for fun. It is actually something that society, and you're seeing it in the numbers and the repulsion and everything, uh, will push back against. But it's a long-term process, I know. You have warned about the threat posed by domestic terrorist organizations. You've been insistent that we identify and that we call terrorists terrorists, yeah. uh, regardless of the skin they're born in. 
There are now reportedly, I think, something like 20,000, 21,000 troops yeah. uh, at the United States Capitol. Yeah. Is this the new normal? No, I don't think it is. I, th- I, I actually don't. I think we have a unique constitutional moment next week, uh, January 20th, and then we will figure out what the threat is. I do think there will be elevated threat for uh, the president and vice president, just given the nature that all it takes is one, one crazy man and one good shot. Uh, I do worry about members of Congress of color, but I do think that with enough prosecutions, enough of the shaming, they get fired, they they lose their jobs as cops, they put it on Facebook, their society ostracizes them. Look at the cases that, that are already out and the investigations. The FBI literally said, people, it's your family and friends that are turning you in, right? We're not doing any investigation. We're getting phone calls from mom who knew that you were there and is saying enough is enough. Like, so in some ways it's your community can have a, a disciplining effect. I heard that there's reporting that the president wants a military send-off yeah. on the 20th. And until Joe Biden puts his hand on the Bible and takes the oath, Donald J. Trump is still the president. I'm going to hazard a guess and say that you don't think he should do that. Hmm. Do you think he can? He he does have the power to order himself a military goodbye. Yeah, does I don't even really know what he means by that. Like, I don't know. Like, does he want a parade? Like, does he does he want a fancy helicopter ride? Like, it's just not even clear. So, I mean, he's he's lost it. I mean, it's just clear from anyone all of the reporting what he did during it. I mean, he's completely lost it. And so I do think part of this is mocking him. I think it is, this is totally like, yeah, you want a military, I mean, it's just crazy. And I don't even know if he knows what he means. So let's talk about COVID-19 for a minute, because you, uh, when you were in the Obama administration, working in uh, the Department of Homeland Security, you worked on H1N1 issues, how vulnerable are we to biological threats, uh, given this woefully inadequate response to a pandemic that a lot of people saw coming? Yeah. Are you worried about our preparedness? Well, um, I, I can't even go there in my head, to be honest. I mean, there'll be so many lessons learned, so many assessments of what's next and stuff. What I am focused on right now, and I think everyone's for 2021, is the split screen, right? This is the, and the president-elect just announced his COVID plan to, to ratchet up vac- vaccinations. So there's the four, five, six, seven thousand 7,000 deaths a day, whatever it's going to be. And then the, the opening up of the vaccines and the vaccination program. So I'm so focused on the split screen. The lessons we'll learn about surveillance, about uh, transparency, about preparation, like what should we have been doing between January, uh, February, March? You know, what does that look like to better rules about the Defense Production Act? I mean, I think we know he was horrible. And I think we know there was no unified or national plan. But I don't know if the, I don't know if we know the best solution for the next round. So speaking of unity and national yeah. plans, Joe Biden is going to take office and be called upon to make deals and compromise and work across the aisle with people, some of whom enabled, supported, 
broadcast as loudly as yeah. they could what you've described as the big lie. Yeah. How is compromise possible in that type of environment? I don't actually think it is. And this is why, this is partially why I wrote the big piece in The Atlantic and why I've been so public is, don't buy the argument not because we know they're phony, because they are, but where did they get unity? But because it's less safe. I mean, in other words, unity does not solve the problem we have. So if you think that the only problem is, oh, Donald Trump is just a jerk and, he, and he's gone next week, then sure, yeah, okay, just go away. That's not the problem. The problem is he is a terrorist leader, a leader of a terrorist organization. So how does he, what's the best exit to lower the safety and security risk? And that's what's key at this stage. That, that's what people have to understand. It's not unity because we, we hate him or because we won and they lost and we, they've driven us crazy for four years and now we're going to drive. That's not what you reject unity because the, the safer, better America is only with the utter isolation of Trump and his family, the mocking, degradation, political consequences, prosecutions, whatever it is for those who would do violence or support the big lie. And then we'll figure the rest out. So, you know, I wasn't a you know leading member of the resistance. I obviously did not like Trump, but I had kept my cool. Not any, not anymore. Do you think he should be criminally prosecuted? Yes. What's the likelihood of a criminal prosecution? I think the Justice Department should not say no or yes. I think you have to review it. But if if the question is, well, let's just move on and let him just, you know, go to Mar-a-Lago and that'll be the end of it. No, no. We know now there's no barrier for him. There's no norm he won't break. What are you worried about? You know more than most people about security threats, about areas of vulnerability. You're also a mom. You are the wife. You're married to a federal judge. What concerns you? What scares you? What keeps you up at night? So I have an immediate and then an existential. So the immediate is obviously where does the hate go? And I do think it's going to be very, very hard. And we're going to have to focus on minimizing the harms. and, and, And foreign countries are going to take advantage of what we're going through and rebuilding that sense of norms, even though we never, we didn't always live by them. That's, so that's my immediate concern. I do think, as I said before, we will get there. My long term is, of course, climate change. That, I, that unless we take charge of that, we will have to live differently. We will, our threats will be different, everything. So we need to, I mean, this is what's also good about a new, we need to get a serious handle on that. In an environment, Juliet, where we've had to work as hard as we've had over the past year or so to get people even to wear masks. I know. Do you think there's the political will to take on a big existential issue like climate change? Yes, I mean, I do. we're fighting. People won't even wear it. Like they're mad about putting on a mask to go to Trader Joe's. Let me just put the, the masking in because this is, this is where it's, I think it's helpful for people to hear this. Only Trump made it a culture war. And he lost because the polling actually shows up to 80% of the U.S. population desires masking rules. So what's happening is because he's present, this is why he needs to be isolated. He's catering to a crowd that seems larger because he has his governors and the proxies and everything else, but it's not. So, So I think Biden, I don't know, he can't mandate it, but I think Biden will push on this, right? So that's the first thing, number one. Number two is they're looking at the polling too. 
So the Republicans are going to have to figure out how they come back. The Democrats are going to want to retain power. If you're under 30, 35, doesn't matter your, your um, party affiliation is, you're ranking climate change in one of the top three issues that you're worried about right now as long-term. So they're looking at the next generation and saying, if we don't address this, we're in big trouble, which is good. And, you know, you talk to kids, you talk to anyone under 20, that this is the issue. I mean, they're nervous now about COVID and terrorism and all that stuff, but this is the way to think about it. So your point is that regardless of what the old guard says or does or doesn't do, uh, for young people, young voters, the next generation, they're not having it and they're going to do yeah, something about it. I think it. that's right. I think that's right. So- Let's end on this note. Uh, we have known each other for a long time. I um, know. Over 20 years. Uh, we were both <laughs> much younger lawyers at the Department I of Justice. Know. We've aged well. We have. Kind I'm of. proud of it. I'm, I'm, I'm good with it. Yeah. Um, what has gotten, in your view, mm. significantly better? Yeah. What has gotten significantly worse? Huh. And we're talking over the past two decades. And... What's your recommendation for having a, a more vibrant civil dialogue in the country? We're not yeah. all going to always agree, nor should we always. Yeah. Uh, there are always going to be people who vote differently. I mean, I remember back in the, it seems, seems quaint, uh, the old days when you and I would sit down with a diverse group of folks and yeah. like debate judicial nominees. Like yeah. those debates seem quaint. Yeah. What's better? What's worse? How do we get better still? Okay, so I'm. I mean, so so one is, you know, we're of a certain age now. So a I good think, age, a good, good age. age. I do think. I think for younger women, like it does actually get better when your kids age or you don't give a shit, and like <laughs> it actually does become easier and in some weird way. But I think one of the benefits, and you and I are are, are models of this, is if you're willing to accept the stress of the changes, you can have really interesting careers that are not linear. So like people think, oh, Juliet, she's done this, this, this. Like, honestly, if you look at my career between 2001 and 2005, when I had three kids in a five-year period, I don't think I worked a full work day. You know, I have like this <laughs> like, you know, minor. So, so one thing is just sort of trying to build. So that's better. Uh, what's worse besides I eat less, exercise more, and still can't seem to lose weight, um, uh, which is the, you know, the nature of, um, so what's worse? I, okay, this is going to be horrible, but I, I think, and I think it's changing is, I think lean in, the notion of lean in has been very destructive to young women. And I am not a proponent of it. And I really, um, and so in terms of gender issues, this is how I think about it is, is, uh, is there are structural challenges. It has nothing to do with what we're trying to do. It has to do with the former bosses that do X, Y, and Z, or the, the work ethic that says you have to be in at 7 a.m. till 10 p.m. as if that's showing productivity or just whatever. There are structural things that we need to continue to fight. And in a weird way, COVID has so exposed them both the fallacy of the office, right? And the office culture, or not the fallacy, but the necessity of it and whether we can't have alternative lifestyles. But also this is a woman's recession. I mean, if you actually look at the numbers, women are experiencing it different. The way we, the way we work, uh, white collar women are leaving the workforce because of school. So we've got a whole lot of structural issues. And I read a, a story and then I'll, I'll and then, um, and then I'll end, end with two quick stories. One is just an article I read that I thought was really interesting, which was just like the entire 
COVID thing has so impacted women and women of color that like how deep was our progress if just one pandemic could erase 20% of the female workforce? Because that's basically what the numbers are. So that's something to think about is like how deep, like, you know, rebuilding those roots. But I'm going to end with a happy feeling because I feel like I, we should. So when you and I were at DOJ uh, or in D.C., it was the first time under Clinton that we did a federal hate crimes act. And, uh, and it covered all the usual classes. And then a group of uh, transgender came in. So this is how many years ago is this? This would have been 25 years ago. And they were advocating for inclusion in a federal anti-hate crime statute, right? So this is 25 years ago. We didn't talk about transgender. You and I probably didn't understand it. Our kids, you know, kids are different. But I, mean, I don't like, even think we use the word. Like, yeah, I don't think 20 like years ago people yeah. were saying transgender. We didn't, we didn't know. There was no. And the idea that they needed to be represented was rejected by a very liberal civil rights division and or not by the division, but by a pretty liberal Department of Justice and ultimately the White House so that the federal hate crime statute went forward and was ultimately passed without a category that today we would say there's no way that you would pass anti-hate crimes legislation without that group, right? Without a group at, at the table and representing an important part of our society. So that's in my professional lifetime. That's not even in my lifetime. That's, in, that's between the age of 25 and 50, that Democrats could have sat in a room and not gone forward, that to now you, you would just win. So I'm going to end on a puzzle, which is things can be really crappy and then they can change. And I think that's, I have to believe in that. I mean, I just, you know, otherwise, what, otherwise, what are we doing this for? Right. So you know, perfectly said, girl, Thank the you. justice train, the justice train keeps moving forward. Yeah. Uh, Juliet Kayam, uh, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much. What uh, I, you definitely have to come back and I would um, love it. Yeah. Uh, done. I would love it. Done. Thanks, Not Juliet. in the middle of the civil war though, you know, no, not in the middle of the civil war, hopefully Please. on well, the other end so of it. Thank you so much. You're so amazing and patient. Your listeners should know that my son's car broke down in Maine. So I'm sort of ignoring him right now. So I'm going to say goodbye <laughs> and then go get him. I think I have to drive to Maine right now. All um, right. Good luck, sis. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Okay. The Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me. Sam Fergoso is my producer. Andre Lynn is my editor. Cole Mitchell is my composer. Sydney Freeman is my production assistant. And my show dog is Maximus Justice, also known as Max. If you like us, please go on to iTunes and leave a five-star review. Maybe I'll even have the chance to read it on the air. I will give you my hugest and most profuse thanks if you do. Thanks for listening, everybody. 